Welcome everybody, Learn With Lowell Show. Uh, new episode coming out right now, as you can tell, because you're listening in. We're talking with Rai Menja. She was on the podcast a couple years ago, but uh, she has had, as you can imagine, many things happen since 2019. I mean, <laughs> she experienced 2020. She's looking uh, for a new HQ. She's building a space plane. And today we really can dig into renewable technology, as well as at the end, we start talking about a bunch of different subjects. So if you want to hear about someone who's had 20 plus experience in the space, aerospace industry, patents things, and has a really just unique way of looking at, at things, um, this is a great episode for you. And if you liked it, let me know. I'm always uh, excited to hear from people. Also remember to check out the Learn With Little website. There you can find Rise links to all of her stuff. So you can send her an email or follow-ups or anything like that. Welcome back on the show. The, you got a got a bunch of, you know, so much has gone on <laughs> since the last time we spoke. Um, yeah, and yeah. The, you're coming out with a few really awesome things. One of them in particular, I know we wanted to get started on, is your passion for renewable technology and you've uh, i think you've you recently got issued patents and you have some uh testing going out there for something that you've built so um well, let's... we've had we've had testing uh on these systems for uh, 11 years and we actually had the first unit we ever it, it deployed go through hurricane ike and it did a really good job um and it's the tcom uh, Star Sailor Energy TCOM wind turbine. It's a built environment safe wind turbine. And these were originally designed to do aerospace telemetry and, um, you know, send and, you know, ward size packet data across large spaces. And we decided uh, a long time ago now that, that, that this would be a good idea to develop. And we are on our ninth patent is issuing now. And we have uh, a biomimetic rotor on our wind turbine. It's a vertical access wind turbine, access wind turbine, but it has a biomimetic rotor that makes it very efficient. Um, and it has to do with studying bird flight. Uh, I, I do have a doctorate in aerospace engineering and uh, it's, been, it's been very exciting. Um, and so we're deploying, we deployed the first one of the new type last fall and we've had an agreement for over a year. We kind of, you know, COVID was such a challenge for so many people. Yeah. And I, I know our partners had <laughs> some interesting times, um, but we're actually working with Santa Fe Community College, which is a leading center of renewable energy in North Central New Mexico. Um, the program had been developed by Luke Spankenberg and he passed away. I mean, we lost him last September. And um, we, you know, everybody was, you know, really concerned uh, how we would continue. And there are test beds at, at Santa Fe Community College from all over the world. Companies like Siemens uh, are, have invested a great deal of time and money with them. They have the largest uh, solar array in New Mexico at the college. And they are dedicated to developing renewable uh, technologies. Mm -hmm. And they're recognized for their work in algae-based fuels, which is really interesting too. So our first TCOM um, up systems, uninterruptible power supply units are being deployed at Santa Fe Community College. And it's going to be an IoT and wireless network, which is completely secure because it's self-powered. Mm -hmm. I think we were um, we were talking and you were you were saying that uh, if you wanted to build like a small like kind of like update the U.S. energy grid, 
that it wouldn't actually cost that much if you were to use this type of technology that you developed. Like it's well, not no, because we would we would we're not grid. We're we're local power. And hmm. this is the thing that that has been really distressing for many of us who've been involved in this work for you know 15, 20 years. Um be, and I want to get to the analogy with aerospace systems and renewable energy because I think that's really important for people to know. Um, but the the thing is, is that any grid power, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's solar or wind or um, natural gas, hydro, whatever it is, 80% of the electricity that is generated by the technology of whatever type is generating it is lost in transmission. So grid produce electricity, even wind-based grid elect electricity is really inefficient because you lose 80% of that electricity in transmission to the end user. And I gave a, a it's been a, oh my God, it's a year and a half now. It's hard to believe. I'm going to be giving another seminar um, when I'm out in New Mexico in uh, the June, July timeframe on how new buildings, there is not a new building, residential, commercial, industrial, that should be built today that should not be energy independent. It should be able to generate its own electricity, produce its own energy. So I, I, I imagine it's similar as you are gonna slowly start rolling it out to kind of what Starlink is doing, where it goes to rural, gets those places that isn't really served very well with their energy needs to um, you know, fill those needs in a much more competitive way and then kind of roll out from there. Like what, what is your, your thinking in terms of making it get in as many people's hands as possible? Well, we started out with our key partners um, up, up on the Star Sailor new site, Bill Sailor. Um, Bill is a really well-known uh, space engineer. Um, he, he and I met actually at Los Alamos a long time ago and when I was a postdoc. And he has a, a master's from MIT. He's, he's this brilliant guy in space systems. And um, he, at his one dead tree ranch up in the front range of Denver, he has our wind turbines. He's installing them in his new uh, radio astronomy laboratory. He was the um, Shriver chair at the Air Force Academy in, in space systems astronautics for like 10 years. And he's, he's really dedicated to STEM and creating new opportunities and proving new technologies. And he's, he has a passion for radio astronomy because of his work in satellite systems. Um, he's one of the leaders in uh, space communications and he's happily on our team at Aerospace Research Systems, the company that spun off Star Sailor, you know, more than a decade ago. And uh, Aerospace Research Systems, RSI, has spun off um, four companies now that have done exceedingly well. And we're getting ready to spin off our fifth one. And it's, it's kind of a culmination of uh, 20 years of work. And, um, you know, we keep saying, it, it, you know, how do we introduce our side? It's been around so long, but we have all our people now um, on board around the country with their own groups and their own teams and their own um, capabilities. So, uh, it's it's really exciting because we, we cover a full spectrum of aerospace and energy. And we see that as kind of um, a convergent convergence in increasing the security and safety of the United States. We recently had that colonial pipeline incident. And if you were to take our self-powered intelligent network, our spin system that uses our TCOM UPS platforms, 
um, and lay it over a, a pipeline program like uh, operation like that, you could eliminate the problem because if you're if you're held hostage all of a sudden, you can say, well, booger you, we're going to our secondary network and 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 we would provide power and data and actually um, we are right now working with a data center developer to lay down our networks over their data centers because we can mirror their data centers and provide backup and also carry their data a little further so they're reducing latency and the the power the energy part gives them the ultimate security and that's something that i think a lot of people doing cyber physical work forget is that ultimately if you want security cyber security you need to control your own energy yeah the, um, so if, if you were to, it kind of reminds me of this TV show called Mr. Robot. I think they literally, you, I think it's like a plot where they attack the energy grid to like make everything crack down. If everyone's watching it, maybe I may, I might be thinking of something else, but if you were, if we were to go to this data center using this technology, what would it look like, uh, for people, like for people listening, I'll have like links to the show notes, but like for people just who are going to listen in, um, like I walk up, um, like, cause I, in my, my head, even though I've already seen the images, I just imagine Tesla coils, you know, like, like the, what like the Tesla, <laughs> you know, he had those, like those drawings of like transporting energy well, through the air. Well, he, well, here's the thing. The networks themselves, each node produces electricity. And we, we have a, a, a share, a, a sharing model that we're deploying. So people can buy their own systems. And then depending on the size of the node, because the node could be as little as 50 Watts Say they're just relaying uh, a data sensor for a water well on a farm somewhere or um, information on a roadway or something. But say you have a big node and the node has, you know, a kilowatt or two and suddenly you don't have to use that node for that period of time or that energy. We can set it up so other people use your node and create revenues for you. So it, it's a revenue producing model for people who are invested in, in the spin networks, in the spin systems, and they're very secure. We're using ledgers and we're using other types of technology. So um, the, the unique thing about these uh, networks is they're based on neuromorphic models. So I can uh, look at a spin, a set of spin systems across say the Northern United States. And we know that a certain point in time that there's going to be an issue uh, with, with data because we've seen it in the past and there's going to be potentially continuing problem with a grid issue in the winter because there are continuing problems with different electrical systems and distributions in the winter very often in the northern part of the United States. And we can work around that. We can actually morph the grid, morph our, morph our network to meet the demands of the users of the network because of the network sharing capacity. And it, it, it is much different than a lot of um, morphing networks than we currently have because it, it's based on um, a neural uh, genesis model. So it's neuromorphic and it makes it probably one of the more secure systems. It's not easily predictable. You can't go and create an algorithm where you can automatically uh, determine where our network's going to be operating because it, it, it isn't based on uh, anything but usage and demand of data and power. So it, it's, it's a much different way of doing things. The other part of this is that we embarked 
three years ago on carbon zero. That was our intent to create carbon zero data for aerospace telemetry and communications because we're starting to get some um, traffic jams in a lot of ways. I know that people in the last few weeks have been working very hard to preserve an area of um, higher frequency communications called C-band because the 5G people are very hungry for spectrum, but the 5G people are also very hungry for energy. And uh, Debert, who heads up Citizen Lab in Canada, I know a lot of cyber folks are familiar with him. You know, he did an interview earlier this year and he said, look, we've got a problem. Every time someone takes their 5G mobile phone and does a Google search, it's like driving an SUV 50 feet in terms of the carbon production. So the idea of being able to deploy these networks and create independent networks, like, like I don't wanna say an internet too, but definitely an, an alternative to the way we're, we're, we're doing um, internet and web operations where people can control their own data and reduce latency for things like aerospace operations and uh, critical data and, and um, infrastructure information and mobility information. I mean, we've got some significant challenges coming. Uh, one of the first things we're intending to do in the next six months is design out a direct DC charging station for uh, the Santa Fe area so that they can have electric vehicles that aren't dependent upon grid electricity. If we tried to do everything that the Biden administration has now announced they're gonna do in terms of electric vehicles, we'd collapse the grid. Um, you know, electric vehicles, electric mobility has been called the moving target for the grid. And it is, it's a, it's a major issue in tasking um, electrical distribution. Yeah. So for people who aren't familiar with how the energy grid is currently set up, how would you describe that and then compare it to what you're building? So like, I have oh, my we're analogies. Not, we're, yeah. we're not, we're not, we're totally separate. We're based in local energy. So we're, we're focused on creating energy locally, hmm. but we're also creating these networks nationally and, and regionally to support data and communications outside of existing infrastructures. It, so it sounds like the internet. Are no, you are not dependent on um, the grid. You're not dependent on 5G. You have your own um, uh, basically backhaul system. Uh, we figured out two years ago, and this was before, what would we call it? The poop show of 2020. Um, <laughs> we, we figured at that point in time that we could do a linear network coast to coast, roughly linear for about $25 million. And what that means is that we could create this really resilient infrastructure that would support critical operations and give um, broadband um, the resiliency it needs. I mean, we're moving towards things like Starlink and and space-based 5G and all these things, that's great, but you still have to have ground-based interfaces. And they still require a great deal of energy when you're working with those mobile devices that we all carry now. Can you, um, could you build like a mobile one? Like if you could like hook it up to the top of your car and then like stop at night when you're sleeping and it would like charge up or does it have to be stationary? So like no, it doesn't have, we actually, Bill Saylor's actually putting one on a trailer. <laughs> 
so he can drive it around and do demonstrations and um and show how well that you know we can do um you know a lot of these uh wireless communications uh networks and in areas like around the denver area particularly the front range where i think you'd call it flat <laughs> you can you've got as much as 60 nautical miles where you can run from node to node in terms of communications with a fair amount of bandwidth. Um, and in terms of energy, it doesn't really cost that much. Um, there are some really extraordinary new technologies in terms of communications technologies that have come out. And, um, you know, for, for, for people who are doing, you know, local stuff for their business and they want to do electric vehicles and stuff, we can do that really easy for them. Um, it's not a difficult thing to do. We can we can set down a, a system for them that will power electrical charging, give them backup on their business, and backup their data networks, uh, and and create some you know real um, security. Uh, we can also, if we work with them early on, help them design buildings where we actually integrate our wind turbines into the buildings. Uh, using wind and solar, and you can pretty much be totally independent. You're a self-contained operation at that point. Um, I, feel like, I feel like Texas would love you. <laughs> you know, after oh, this I last mean, winter. We're talking to people in Texas, and that was a really unfortunate situation. And a lot of that was bad planning and bad operational management. It wasn't necessarily the wind technology itself. It just was bad preparation. Um but once again, you know, I think we have decisions to make. Um, we're looking at grid improvements. Um, I'm, I work with the American Society of Civil Engineers, Environmental and Water Resource Institute. And we, I work on the uh, Renewable Energies, Re Renewable Energy Technologies Committee. And I'm now secretary, which, which means I said yes when I shouldn't have. But, uh, but we're, we just finished a book that the American Society of Civil Engineers is publishing about how renewable energy needs to be used in water infrastructures. Because one of the things we have, and this isn't a secret to our adversaries. Unfortunately, many of uh, the people we've elected to government around the country seem to be really unaware of how um, really extraordinarily um, susceptible to things like cybercrime, water resources are. And uh, a lot of the water plants in this country have very poor um, uh, security. Uh, Bill and I were talking a while ago about some of the transformer stations that are used by the utilities and their, their radio communications that are used between their, their control um, operations and, and their transformers. And, he said, you can sit next to them in a parking lot and listen to everything that's going on. The security is very poor. And one of the things we've done in this book that we're, that's going out um, from the American Society of Civil Engineers is saying, these are the solutions. You know, this is the one thing that we started working with ASCE probably two years ago to say, okay, we've been telling the American people that our infrastructures have been failing for 10, 15 years. But wouldn't it be nice that we can give them some solutions and show them how to fix the problem? And a, a lot of what we're finding in terms of transportation and water and um, various national infrastructures really is the implementation of renewable energy.
that's interesting. The, um, and I, I a hundred percent agree. Whenever I hear a problem, I always wonder how do we solve it? Cause it's good to raise awareness on a problem, but, uh, maybe it's just like part of my brain is always like, how do I, what can I do? You know, like I can, I can share a Twitter. Like, how do I, how do I take what I've learned and like create action from it? Is it, so if, when the book is out, if there's like a, from a, I don't know, from a village to a city, to a, to a business, to a farm, do they just take that, you know, guide and, and work with it? Or do they contact you guys to get something more custom well, made? Or is it like a, a thing well, to like prime people? Well, Star Sailor and RSI are setting up the network uh, of our subject matter experts in our different groups around the country. And we, we do more and more in terms of, you know, half my time now is trying to find ways to educate policy people and businesses. And this summer, we're going to be doing probably 12 talks around the country in Ohio, uh, Colorado, New Mexico, Wisconsin. Um, we're going to be doing talks on, look, okay, everybody knows what the problems are. You know, 12 year olds know what problems are. Let's look at the ways we can create solutions. Mm -hmm. And the problem with the utility companies has been, it's, has always been, is that you're dealing with centralized distribution of electricity. And that is an expensive way of doing things. When you can do local power, whether it's hydro or solar or wind, and, and by the way, it's going to take a combination. It's not going to be one particular renewable technology that's going to save us. It's going to be, for us, we're doing hybrid wind and solar, and we have found that to be a bulletproof combination for all latitudes in the United States. Because, you know, we can do really good wind, better wind in the north, and we can do better solar in the south. But we're finding out in the mountains of New Mexico, the mountains of New Mexico do great things with wind. And it's just, it, it allows us to create this diversity in renewables and energy resources that will create the resiliency that we need locally and nationally. And the thing is, right now, nationally, they're not making good decisions. They, they, they know there are problems, but it's going to be the, the local organizations, it's going to be local businesses, it's going to be the local governments that are going to make the better decisions because they know their communities, they know their needs, and they know where the problems exist. They don't know that in Washington. They don't pay attention to anything beyond the Beltway. Yeah, they have a lot to do. The, when you, when you, <laughs> the, the people in Washington, I feel like uh, they have so much to do. And, it's, um, and I look at it and it's like, I don't know. They're trying. Like, like Well, you know, every time I hear them say they're going to get the best people and, and they go to the universities and I'm going, don't go to the universities. I used to be in a university. People in universities don't do anything. Go outside the universities. Go to the highly innovative small businesses around this country that are doing amazing science and amazing technology and creating these new products and these jobs. And we're creating, you know, uh, uh, collaborative programs across business and, and, you know, a small college like Santa Fe Community College does amazing things. I mean, they're, I just, I can't be, you know, I'm terribly effusive about them, but they're doing extraordinary things for their community. I mean, they have one of the most diverse communities in the United States. It is a minority community by definition. And creating opportunities for people 
to develop professional skills and actual professions and the things that we really need like renewable energy and the ability to produce our own fuels from things like algae and plants and not have to dig up dead dinosaurs and pump them out of the ground. Um, you know, it's always, you know, since I was a kid, uh, my family had a uh, engineering and construction management firm when I was growing up. And we worked a lot in a petrochemical field. Mostly my father was one of the first people to begin using pollution control systems in the 60s on petrochemical plants. And, but he also worked very hard to improve energy utilization and create energy. And he did a lot of cogen plants. And then he got into uh, fuel alcohol and creating um, uh, stills for fuel in the 1970s. And he, he was an interesting guy because he started his career on the Manhattan Project and um, really, really moved into what was very, very early on pollution control technologies for industry. And uh, he understood, you know, things like back in the day when they, they taught engineering in the, in the 30s and early 40s, people were really concerned about energy and the way we used it. Because if you could make your, your projects, your programs, whatever you were building more efficient, it was better. And somehow we got away from that because energy was cheap. And what we learned about going back to these highly efficient ways of, of building products and, and creating uh, processes is we learned that it not only saved energy, but it improved the products and created greater opportunities, more optimization in the actual processes. And that part I think has been really interesting. Um, so that, that's the other part of it. And the other part of Star Sailor, which I didn't mention to you, is that we have our, our energy storage stuff now. We have our, our big um, mechanical battery system, which is based in functional structures and functional materials. It's scalable, it's lightweight. Um, we're gonna look at using it as a auxiliary power unit for spacecraft. And we, we have a patent that the device um, which is a modular um, mechanical storage system can actually function as a robot arm. So we're really happy about that because it, it, it harvests heat from the environment. Uh, one of the first applications is we're working with some solar concentrator uh, folks that it will actually take the heat out of a, the solar cell in a solar concentrator. They get very hot. Because they have these big um, dishes where they concentrate um, the sunlight, the solar energy onto a cell. And so they get exceedingly hot. Well, we can take that energy and actually produce more electricity or more power, whatever they need, directly from the, the thermal harvesting of the solar uh, concentrator. So does that work like through convection? Like I'm trying to imagine how. No, it's actually, it's actually the base. It's based in the materials and the materials um, will are responsive thermally. So the, the, when it gets really hot, the, the type of materials we, we use are a number of different things, including some things, devices that we developed um, so that the, 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 the unit will either expand or contract based on the thermal See, we, 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 we integrate each unit based on its application. 
Mm -hmm. um, and that way, if you have a robot that needs to move something on a spacecraft, um, you, you align it with the sun at a certain point in time, and then it'll move a radiator or change uh, a, something or a solar array or do something else. And so when the solar uh, concentrators, we have a different design. So the devices are optimized to take the heat and manage the heat on the solar uh, cells and create electricity from it. So um, either we drive a generator or we uh, drive a device that, that drives a generator. So there are different ways of doing this, but it goes through an electrical generator set and mm -hmm. it is very efficient and, it, and it, it's, um, it can go into a fly, flywheel as well. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of uh, physical, I should say mechanical force to these devices. So you can actually move a, do a great deal of displacement in a short period of time if you need to. Is there like, um, if I, if I was a business and I wanted to, after hearing this conversation, wanted to get access to the battery, cause that's like the, the, the second part having renewals. And then at the same time, having something to cover when, um, I don't know, the wind stops or whatever, depending on where you're at, um, yeah. how would, how would someone buy them? Do they have to like just call well, you guys right up? Now, right now or? we're licensing. Right now we're licensing these technologies. Our motorless motion okay. module, which is a um, functional material-based module that is a, it replaces um, like, uh, oh, just your general actuator, something that's a rotational device. Mm -hmm. Very lightweight, very low power, can en harvest energy from the environment. Um, really ideal for, for lightweight mobility applications, spacecraft, aircraft, that type of thing. Um, so right now we're, everything that we're, we're not applying directly to our current products, we're licensing out to other companies. And so automation companies, um, controls, um, motion controls, uh, people who, you know, create servos and linear potentiometers and actuators and stuff, those are the ones we're looking at, as well as uh, thermal management kinds of groups that make, you know, specialty radiators and, and thermal control devices. <clears throat> yeah, I, I could definitely see a place for it, you know, just as one example, not to like keep picking uh, companies that Elon Musk is a part of, but, you know, he's trying to build more of those little uh, hubs for charging in the middle of nowhere to have like more surface area. People can just, you know, park and do their thing. Mm -hmm. Um I can totally say it. Cause like, you don't have to hook it up to anything like a decentralized grid is just a really powerful thing. Um, oh yeah. And, and yeah, but I, you know, I always say let's, let's get away from the concept of a grid because it's not doing a good thing and creating um, morphing energy networks. So they actually meet the needs autonomously um, is, is such a more efficient way to go. And go ahead. No, you have a question. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm wondering how does the neuromorphic system to automatically manipulate the, the, the network work? It reminds me of machine learning, but then it's not called machine learning. So I assume it works differently. Well, it, it, you set it up. So you have, you know, on demand, whether it's data or power and usually data and power go together. So the, the demand based on, um, Say you've got um, a set of nodes, a, a, say you have a spin system out in Colorado and it's integrated with a spin system in Wyoming. And there's a group in Wyoming that are um, porting their data center 
you know, over a couple of days because they're setting up a, a new um, facility where they're doing, you know, robotic manufacturing or something. So we, we will know within a very quick uh, part, you know, point in time that because our, our nodes will detect it, that they have a demand for more, uh, more electricity and or more space in terms of edge computing where they can put their data, where they can store their data. And a lot of that comes down to uh, some of the software we're using that people can actually say, okay, I need to schedule this capacity at this point in time and this, you know, spin network one or spin two, um, we don't have this capacity, can spin three or spin four give us that capacity for that period of time. Mm, okay. And and that's that's very easy to do. And one of the things that, you know, we do with these um networks is we're able to shuffle nodes. So we have um, basically mirrored data on maybe more than one node. So you could have like 1A and, and, and um, you know, 2A, and they'll, they'll, they'll share all the data in A, and it'll be mirrored. And so that way, if there's a failure in the network, you still have it. And that's why a lot of the data centers are really interested in this now. Not only are we able to reduce latency, which edge computing and cloud hopping can do naturally, but we're able to move large amounts of data seamlessly because of, of the redundancy in, in the nodes, just, just by the design of the nodes. Is it possible to do, um, I know you can do this in a database, but I'm wondering with your system, could you do a like sharding to have redundancy and how the information is stored and moved around or is it oh, like yeah. only in okay because yeah. it sounds similar to what you're saying like it just makes it really 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 redundant R redundant not redundant um well the ledger stuff is really exciting because it's so secure um the only problem with ledgers is you, is you need to copy them and depending on you know what you're doing um you know, and the type of, of networks and ledgers you're using, it's, 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 um, it can be difficult. So we're trying to, we're trying to make it as simplified and as secure as possible. How, so the, I have a series of questions. The, um, the first one is I'm always, I always wonder like how people build what they build. And so, um, <laughs> you know, like kind of a meta thing, but, uh, you know, I'm wondering like what your lab, looks like you know uh how you guys build things like do you have like you know 3d printers to do prototyping you know like like kind of especially with with so many patents with so many different things that you're doing i'm curious like how you actually do it well we've got um right now um in the in the ohio and kentucky area we've got um four um kind of individually owned facilities that we use and we haven't used a lot of 3D printing because so much of what we do is structural metal mm. and kind of aerospace alloys that it, it's really hard to do. It's getting to that point when we'll be able to, but um, cost-wise in terms of manufacturing, it's just not there yet. And I've been watching it. I, I, I am a materials scientist, materials engineer, and um, there's an organization called ASM International. Uh, it used to be Amer American Society for Materials or Metals. And um, it's probably one of the leading experts on specialty alloys, functional, functional alloys and additive manufacturing. And I sit in on a seminar probably once a quarter 
to listen to you know what's going on and out of manufacturing with with alloys and there's a lot going on but there's there's still there's still some major issues um they, they still have heat treating issues there are still issues in terms of thin film deposition of certain types of um plasma deposition of alloys on an additive an am component um what we know about heat treating from almost every other process doesn't translate to additive manufacturing. I wish it did because there's, you know, reams of data and all kinds of exotic alloys and aerospace alloys. And um, they're getting to the point where you can do like one of a kind things, like actually print a rib cage for someone who needs to have, you know, reconstructive surgery or something. And they can, they can do pretty, um, sophisticated stuff with titanium for medical applications. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, right now we're, we're still in terms of the kind of structural stuff we do, we use um, commercially available um, aluminum and aerospace materials, air, uh, stainless and aluminum. And uh, that means that we have uh, some of the best welders you'll find anywhere in, in the United States. And uh, we we run um, you know top of the line equipment in terms of uh, welding equipment and process equipment. So a lot of it's kind of old fashioned, um, and a lot of it is standard aerospace manufacturing. Uh, the things where we're able to do more advanced things are with uh, the materials that we use on our our platforms for things like uh, microwave permeable enclosures for um, you know supporting communications and hiding antennas and protecting equipment and things. So the, a lot of the stuff that, that we add, we add on the, the um, product, I'd call them enhancements. Those are really, are, are really kind of cutting edge materials. And like our energy storage stuff is really cutting edge kind of things. Um, but, you, you know, I, I would like to say that we're doing all kinds of really fancy stuff. We have an experimental shop that we built uh, five years ago. And it's a really nicely equipped little shop. You can do almost anything. Um, I can actually do uh, glass coatings, vitreous coatings on components. And uh, we, we can do kinds of weird stuff that people generally don't do. So we can build our own sensors and uh, instrumentation. And um, we have people that uh, out West like Bill can assemble communications uh, units. And uh, one of the, our, our folks uh, has a uh, business uh, that he's integrating with some of the things we're doing that does uh, long range secure communications, wireless communications and mobile computing. <clears throat> so generally the network that our side developed, oh my gosh, 20 some years ago uh, still exists, and we all have our own shops and labs and facilities. And my lab actually is kind of a mess right now, but I have this giant um, laser table that I use to study um, motion control and motorless motion devices. And it's one of the ways we've we've developed models to control um, things like uh, shape memory alloys and functional materials using neuromorphic systems and even using, you know, off the shelf uh, controllers because they're a little different than, than say your standard servos. The servo, you, you know, 
you got specs to integrate based on a frequency or, or voltage or whatever you're doing. Whereas this new stuff that we're building in functions based on the material um, and how the material either uh, interfaces with current or, or some thermal um, input, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a much different kind of uh, beast. You know, when uh, some of the companies, the airframe manufacturers were starting to use nitinol actuators on the wings of aircraft, I, I watched very carefully because I had um, some years ago designed a, a flapping wing um, micro aerial vehicle, a membrane, a small membrane like drone. And one of the things that, that I had to be able to demonstrate was that our neurogenesis model could recognize the current and inputs into the, the membrane model and actually control the current so we, we could actually control the flapping wing or the morphing wing of the, of the vehicle. So there really is in, in the future in terms of light weighting of vehicles, functional materials and functional structures are, are really critical. And the ability to, to program the functional structures with a, with a resonant program that can learn from its environment is, has really been key to a lot of the stuff we're doing. Yeah, it, it kind of sounds like uh, in the 1940s when we were trying to build all those ships to you know make sure England didn't like capitulate, we were right. building these li liberty ships, I think they were called, and we could build uh -huh. them like one every 30 days because there were people who would build you know compartment A, B, and C, and then they bring them all into one location and then kind of weld it together. It sounds like the, the R&D system that you have um, at your various companies is kind of like that. Everyone kind of builds a component of it, and then it comes together in the field. If that makes that's sense. right yeah. and that's it's very correct that we do have compartmented activities because we have experts i mean we, we've we've got some of the leading experts in their fields and you know fortunately um you know i've known a lot of them for you know 10 15 years 20 years in case of some 25 in the case of bill um and it's it's you know really extraordinary one of the things we just finished um in the cincinnati area is we've got a test area now for drones so we can actually fly drones and uh, test sensors on drones. So we, we've done that in the last few months. And in Santa Fe, we're opening a new office with Dr. Belinda Wong Swanson. She was one of my colleagues at Los Alamos and she had a business in Santa Fe for a long time doing you know, R&D product development, consulting, business development kind of stuff. And so she's working with us there to uh, improve um, energy and thermal management of, of various uh, products and systems uh, for, for us as well as for other people. So in the, in the next six months, we're opening three new offices around the country. And we have um, our new test pilot joining us, Dr. James Kasler, a great guy. He was actually the first person to fly the V-22 Osprey. Um, so he's, he's, a, he's a wonderful resource for us. And we have Dr. Tom Edwards who works with the FAA and with airlines and all kinds of people to improve airspace safety and operations. And um, so we're really excited that, mm -hmm. that you know, we have these, these new groups rolling out and the new offices opening up. And then of course, as we've been talking about now for how long, I don't know, we're doing our headquarters search now that we thought we would have done last year. Yeah, the, um, I'll, I'll put a pin in the uh, HQ search because I know we, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, mm -hmm. I have uh, 
the are you familiar with engineered living materials like the ability to create materials out of living organisms it's pretty yeah. cool mm-hmm. i don't know if, if you've um you know with the fact that you're a materials person if there's like some cross-pollination there um that you've considered or that well, you think would be yeah, neat. well um my my early training was as a, a mathematical biologist okay and uh as a neuro but a, a kind of a mathematical neuroscientist Besides doing, you know, like solid state physics and chemistry, um, I I'm basically became a mathematical neuroscientist um, because of my interest in artificial intelligence. And I, I wasn't happy with a lot of the stuff that was the, the early uh, work. Um, um, boy, I'm trying to remember the guy's name now. It's terrible. Uh, he was at MIT and he studied insects. And... He did a lot in terms of uh, control and insect learning and and how you model that type of thing. And um, then um, I'm trying to remember um, the guy, uh, maybe, um, yeah, I'm trying to remember that he was um, in um, England, UK person um ai guy uh, i think his name was inman harvey i can't it's terrible i don't remember i just keep um, thinking of the enigma guy yeah but i don't maybe, think that's who no, you're talking about no no it's not him it's an, it's it was in the turn 80 in, in the 90s and he was basically stacking ic's uh chips to model um neurons hmm. and um that was, you know, fascinating to me when I was a student. And I thought I, I, I was interested uh, in something entirely different. And I, people thought, you know, this is crazy, but um, well, so as a student, first of all, I looked at um, the differentiation of the, of the nodal cord in the central nervous system and what that meant for um, signal processing. Mm-hmm. And I set up an experiment um, using chick embryos, I, I aborted chicks, I'm sorry, um, to study um, signal processing in, in chick uh, notochords, which is the precursor of the central nervous system. And, and I also became interested in something called annelids, better known as earthworms, mm-hmm. because they have a ganglial mass called a superpharyngeal ganglia that is a, basically their nervous system. And so I, I, I used a really different approach to studying um, how a, a neuromorphic system would work based on the differentiation and the, the, the layers of signal processing that came in terms of the capacity as the, the notochord in, in vertebrates differentiated. And that, that was how I started out really creating um, neurogenesis models. And it was a much different approach because I was using actual signal processing data so I had a, a good idea of what uh, changed in terms of the frequencies and, and, and how that, that created uh, increased capacity. And, and it, it wasn't just, you know, a step here or a step there. It became actually exponential um, because people forget that the, the, net servi- the central nervous system in vertebrates, which we are, um, is, is a really complex um, dimensional kind of system. I mean, uh, you know, our neurons are temporal devices, essentially. And it, that the fact that you have this ability to control frequencies over a period of time 
um, in terms of stimulus and in, in, in relaying um, uh, information is it's pretty fascinating. So I don't know, that answer your question. I, I, I used to teach and I used to start talking and my students were happy. So. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. It's, um, yeah, you answered my question. The, uh, it's just, there's such really cool things out there that are, you know, like they're making concrete from um, living, uh, living engineer, living materials. So it's, as someone who's a material science, I just love the opportunity to ask you. So I know we're getting close to the end. And so I have some rapid fire questions. And then I would love to wrap up with some things that you got coming up for the future and where people can help you out. But um, so the first one is, and I think this might be related to what you were just were talking about, but is there something that you believe or that you've seen that most people wouldn't agree with you on? You know, like um, it could, it could be on the central nervous system. I'm a, I'm a brain guy too. I, I'm an, uh, I got my degree in neuroscience. Um, so like maybe that might be it. You're probably much more biologically oriented than I am. I'm really a, a math and physics person, but I did mm -hmm. study all the anatomy and crap. So, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> but, is there, is there something that, uh, Oh, that you think is there is something? True yeah. That, there's uh, a lot of, there's a bunch of stuff right now. I don't agree with, uh, <laughs> um, um, I, from a, from a top-down perspective, I'm not a big fan of string theory. Um, what does string theory do to you? <laughs> what's, what's wrong with it? <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm with Penrose on string theory. I, I, here, I'm, I'm going to come back around the other way. I had some problems doing a model and I had to develop a, a mathematical model for something I was working on, um, with my artificial neural membrane stuff in terms of, um, field, uh, field problem. How do how, I couldn't model the field. I couldn't get it to work. And people and a lot of scientists don't know that when, when Einstein was doing relativity and field theory, there were other people doing relativity and field theory called uh, Bertrand Russell and Whitehead. And I have a friend, uh, Joseph Bracken, who's probably one of the leading philosophers on the planet today. Hi, Joe, if you're listening. Um, he actually was at... Um, Freiburg when Heidegger was there. And so the philosophers are going, ooh. <laughs> but uh, Joe um, is an actual leading cosmologist. And I, I had a problem. And I said, I got to look at field theory differently. And actually looking at it differently helped me. And a lot of things going on right now, there are discussions amongst a lot of, um, shall we say, independent thinkers who are actually seriously trained scientists and engineers. I mean, people who've been trained at Los Alamos and MIT and, and you know, real schools. And our, our problem is with the standard model. And the fact that we are so convinced that what we have in, in terms of our, our primary agreement of what the universe should, how it should be defined, I think is an absurdity because if our standard model was correct, we wouldn't have dark energy or, or, or dark matter because we're, we're missing a lot. And so um, I, I get in a lot of trouble when I say stuff like this. And um, I, I'm, I'm concerned that we don't have the open-mindedness or the courage that we once had in the scientific community today that, that we used to have. I, you know, when I used to talk to the people who trained me, the old guys like Bill Chambers 
and Lawrence Booth and Mel Duran is still around. And, you know, the, the Danny Doss and all these people who built a large part of our physics and engineering and nuclear community and, and the basis of, you know, really solid science, you know, they, they weren't closed-minded. They were reasonable. They were rational. And today it's, it's almost more an issue of fashion in the way we look at science than it is, you know, let's, let's apply scientific rigor to new ideas because it just doesn't happen. And it, and it concerns me as a scientist, it concerns me as an engineer, it concerns me as a human being. Um, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm pained when I hear people all, all piling on to a particular concept when we don't have proof of anything. I mean, there's no proof of string theory. Um, and it, it leaves a lot of holes, literally a lot of holes in the way we see the universe. I think the, so I'm not too deep on physics, but I, I, am, I had read like the Walter Isaacson book on Einstein, which is, you know, like toe deep in terms of the, the field. But um, it looked, I think from what I understand, you, you, you know, definitely tell me where I'm wrong, but it looked like the, it looks like, or it seems like the, the stuff that Einstein put out it's been the most robust in terms of, you know, staying power and describing things. And now it's, it's like the new stuff coming out um, are like novel ideas, but they don't completely solve it. It was just, I think what you're saying. Um, okay. I would look at it from a different perspective okay. because it's about, well, I'm a heretic, so it's okay. <laughs> I would say that uh, solid 50% of the physics done today is based on assumptions and that 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 we shouldn't be making. Now, here's the one thing: there used to be something called the Princeton um, Engineering Anomalies Research Laboratory pair. It was it was developed by John and Dunn, I think, in like the 80s. There's actually a book called Margins of Reality, and they wrote it. And one of the things we know in physics is that we can control the outcome of our experiment based on our design. But what Don and John, Don and John found is that we could have an outcome in our, our physical experimentation based on what we want. So our intention actually affects the outcome of the experiments. And ultimately, there are the sociological aspects of science, particularly in the United States, I, I think are, are, we're at a point where we need to make some kind of serious decisions about how we do science. I go and I, I occasionally will search papers. I don't write a lot of papers because most of the stuff I publish comes out in patents or something else. Um, and I, I, it's hard for me to, to actually publish my research because you know people have paid for it. Mm -hmm. And it's not like I can easily share it um, because it, it has you know, an economic value usually because it's a product based or something else they're doing, or, you know, they're buying a company and they want to, you know, prove a technology or whatever they're doing. And so what concerns me is that I will go and search papers and I will pull a paper and it'll have 25 names on it. And then I'll go look at the, the chief authors, the senior authors, the lead authors, and I'll see their names on another five or six or seven papers that are basically derivatives of the original paper. There's nothing really new, but everybody needs to publish something. And I don't know how many hundreds of journals there are there are in the world right now, but we're, we're creating this, this um, um, 
I'm I'm trying to think of the what Penrose called it. I, I will call it a pile of doo-doo. And and we don't need a pile of doo-doo. We need good rigorous science focused on the things that you know we we really we really need to consider. And I mean, it, it, you know, people are going, oh, like string theory is that's what it is. The string, string theory is perfect. It's not, it's very imperfect. And for the string theory advocates out there, I, I, I have um, three words to say to them, loop quantum gravity. And there are people going, oh no, she said that. But really, um, you know, honestly, we, we don't know. There's a lot we just don't know. And as a scientist, I, I will say that every day of the week, I don't know. If I don't know something, I'll tell you. But if I was the scientist who told you I knew everything, um, I would I would be a really bad scientist. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, um, you know, what is it? Cherish the people who seek the truth, but beware of those who find it. Yeah. So, there's also that uh, lovely quote by Neil deGrasse Tyson where he says, like, the more you know the larger your surface area for ignorance is. Yep. So like, true. like if you study some, you should just get dumber, <laughs> not dumber, but you know, like more ignorant. Um, well, yeah. Well, I had a friend when we were getting our doctorates and you got a bunch of these highly, you know, motivated people getting doctorates. And he said, you know what? I, I we're all becoming idiot servants. We're learning more and more about less and less. <laughs> the, the, I don't know, funny, small, uh, story uh, a friend of mine named nick was uh, helping me learn something and I'm like hey thanks for answering my question oh by the way and i told him that quote so at the, you know I, I should thank you for reducing my ignorance but then i should glare at you for increasing at the same time <laughs> which is fun um do you this is kind of like a like a, an aside to this question um so this is becoming less of a rapid fire than its own uh, segue but um do you think there's an upper limit to what we can comprehend in terms of our universe. So like we were just, you know, hunter gatherers, you know, throwing a spear at something and we can do calculus with that same brain. Granted, like there has been refinements to our brain over the last 10,000 years. It's gotten smaller, it's gotten more refined and some more mutations around, you know, the myelin sheath and stuff, for example. But do you think there's like an upper limit in terms of our ability to like permeate how the actual physics of the world works? You know, like what if like, you know, uh, what Einstein did, um, was like the best we can get. And like the closest we can get now is like these weird, um, not bastardized versions, but like, you know, things like your point out, like that might have holes in them that we can't get, we can't get closer than that. Um, do you think there's an upper limit or are you just like a very whole, you know, or yeah. No, I no, I, 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 I'm one of those people who believes in evolution. So, so no, I think if, if we continue to evolve, uh, I think that we have enormous capacity to learn and discover and um, succeed in many ways that, that um, we're not now. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we live on a, a very nice planet with ongoing uh, differentiation in, in living systems. So that means that if we don't evolve, it's our own fault. <laughs> um, so no, I don't think there is an upper limit to what we can do. It's, I think, uh, you know, it's up to us and whether or not we're willing to do the hard work. But, you know, there's, there's you know, people have said like 5% of the population um, you know, in, in, you know, our, our rock hunting days got us out of the caves. And the question is, can the same 5% of the population get us out of the caves we're in now? Cause we built new caves, you know, mm -hmm. and we, we've got to stop this kind of self-defeating kind of, 
um, self-dealing, profit-oriented kind of behavior because there's a point where, and, oh, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this, but there's a point where capitalism in, in the standard model that we have in America is failing. And it's failing brutally for a lot of human beings in America. And, you know, one of the things that I always thought we could do with creating renewable energy products is free people from the servitude of having to pay a utility. Um, and, you know, you have parts of the country now where people are competing with paying their electric bills and paying their rent. Um, it's, it's becoming a, a really serious situation. And, you know, what we're going to see is uh, when we start looking at housing and seriously looking at housing in this country today, because we're not doing that. Um, and housing has to be in those top five things that needs to be a right for human beings. Um, and one of the things we have to do is when we start building housing that's efficient and functional and, you know, will create an environment that's healthy for people. We need to say, hey, this needs to be um, the kind of construction that allows us to have energy that's local within these buildings. Um, so they're cost effective and they're efficient and they're secure. That makes sense. The, um, I was thinking of the Nordic model in terms of like a lot of people think Nordic models like a inherently like more, like a socialist or model. Um, no, no, no. No, it's basically capitalism with more like a more robust social security. I, I've been looking into this because this is one of those questions that I have. And I'm going to ask ask you a similar question, but um, you know, like what would be like an effective way to take care of, like, you know, like what future do we want, right? Like if we continue on as we're going, we either get like Battlestar Galactica or like the Star Wars universe, which you know both of them have slavery in them. Like that's not good. No. You know, if we, you know, if we uh, fundamentally uh, take care of like the, you know, the five things. I imagine the five things I would say and the five things that you say are probably pretty similar. Um, mm -hmm. We get, we get Star Trek, you know, like that, that's kind of like the better timeline. Um, so yeah. I, I've been wondering, you know, how can we build systems that uh, can take care of people in a much better way? But how, um, how, do, we, how do we become Star Trek? You yeah. Know, uh, United Federation of Planets. Yeah. I'm hoping we can uh -huh. skip the eugenics war. Apparently that's supposed to come up soon, but um, well, I, I think, I think we've already had that. But, you know, the, the, the thing we have to do is we have to change the way we, we value things. And that's, that's, I think, really important. Um, one of the things I found really distressing is that I've seen a lot of developments in Midwestern states right now. I don't know if it's all over the country. I know definitely in the Midwest. And I think some parts of like Northern New York, the non-New York City metropolitan area, um, where you have uh, developments going in for healthcare and um, mental health care and housing for the elderly, and they're all for-profit corporations that are funded by the government. And it's, it's creating this kind of strange form of redlining um, where you have this economic partition in communities where those particular communities kind of become the, the profit centers for what I consider to be the welfare state. And that was created by the government. Um, and it's, it's, it really is slavery. It's not improving the lives of, of people by doing these things. Yes, we need mental health services. God knows we need them in the country, in the United States. And I would suggest we need them in the United States Congress profoundly. But um, we, there are better ways of doing things where community-based 
kinds of programs are much more effective, much more resilient, and uh, and respect the dignity of the people in the neighborhoods where these corporations are building. And I, I think that's, you know, this kind of stuff is, it's so um, Orwellian that it actually frightens me because, you know, you look at these mental health facilities they're building for people who don't have the money to spend $5,000 a month on, on care for their, their children or their teenagers. And they look like prisons. They look like prisons. And, and I, I'm, I'm offended by that. Yeah, I've been looking into as an, uh, a simile to what we're uh, you're talking about in terms of privatizing something that should be a public uh, good public uh, thing. I don't know. I can't think of the word, but like some of the oh, public uh, service. There you go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in the name social service. So the, um, I've been looking at prisons and uh, like the aspects that were privatized or in the, the ones that were in privatized prisons. It's like the worst stuff because you have these people that like if you have like a broken arm, they'll give you aspirin. Cause they, they don't, uh-huh. they don't want to fix you. They want you to keep you going just enough so that you leave these, uh, you know, criminals or the, you know, people, you know, not working to become not criminals. Um, and so that when they leave, they hit our system, then we have to pay for it. So they, they literally do the bare minimum, um, in terms of keeping people alive and not oh, and actually treating conditions. Are, some of them are manufacturing facilities, you know, that are built around prisons and I don't like slave labor. I have an issue with that. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is one of one of the the folks on my board, Lance White. He's heavily involved in the prison project, and they go into prisons and they do things like talk to people and treat them like human beings and give them opportunities to have a voice and look at new options and understand, you know, how their behavior is probably necessary to change. And oh, by the way, changing bad behavior isn't really that effective in a U.S. prison um, because our like prisons, 7%. oh my God, our prisons are noisy and they're violent. And, you know, if you go to Norway, you got people walking around on farms. <laughs> it's just, it's a much different kind of environment. And we, we have to, to, you know, look at uh, the way we, we deal with uh, violence and deviant behavior and, and, and issues much differently. I mean, one of the best things I've seen happen in this country in a long time, and by the way, I do not do drugs, boys and girls, I'm a commercial pilot, but um, they're legalizing weed. Yeah, tax it. I mean, thank God, everywhere. I mean, it's been stupid not to. I mean, they sell cigarettes and, you know, when the pandemic was at its worst, I bought a case of Everclear. And I kept waiting for someone to show up at my door, ask me what I was doing with all the ethanol, but I used it for an actual disinfectant. Um, and, um, you know, we, we have these amazing drugs that we sell over the counter that, you know, could kill people. Nobody seems to care about that. <clears throat> and I, I haven't seen a lot of people kill people on, on marijuana. I, I don't have a great deal of experience, but it seems to me that people who smoke pot really aren't terribly violent human beings. Yeah. There are, uh, there's even cases um, where people who had like a little bit too much marijuana on them were getting like 20 year sentences. It's like, that's, oh, it's- that's, that should be saved for, you know, special crimes. Not like you wanted to get high. But anyways, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, legalizing and taxing it and then using that tax money for other things. Um, but 
so uh, segueing on to the the next question because I, I I want to be respectful of your time. Um, the is there um, a book that you've gifted most in this last year uh, that you wouldn't mind sharing? Uh, I was looking for more books. I literally bought ten more today. I can't oh help myself. God. The books I give to people are are you know truly um, kind of um, boring kind of books. I mean, like grab. I'm looking at my bookshelf as you're asking me that. Um, let's see. Uh, the the warped passages by Lisa Randall. I give a, to a lot of my lay friends. Um, Feynman lectures are always good. Mm-hmm. Um, um trying his to bio's kind of his, his bio's kind of eccentric yeah well yeah no, it's like the surely you're joking mr Feynman. yeah that one i have that one actually on my bookshelf he just kept um, breaking into things i'm surprised he didn't get in trouble more <laughs> yeah. oh margins of reality i mentioned it during our, during our discussion i have given that to friends recently and another one uh beyond the third dimension which is really interesting because it it's a it gives you a construct of space and, and, and spaces within dimensions. Um, there's a there's another book uh, that I really like, and I'm gonna have to get up and look to see remember who who wrote it. But it's about von Braun, and uh, yeah, Michael Newfield wrote it. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a great book. Um, and another book that I've enjoyed, um, it's the 48 laws of power by Michael Green. I just finished reading that. Did you? Um, um, I like it when I, when I have students who are looking at going into law or management or anything like that, I make sure they, they read it. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, um, watered down version of a number of things for people who don't want to, you know, read the art of war and everything else. Um, it's really interesting. Um, and there's also the Tao of leadership, which I can't remember who wrote it recently, but I, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, unfortunately, a lot of stuff I read is very dry and boring stuff. Uh, like you, based on what you've recommended, I, I actually think you might like, uh, the power broker by Robert Caro. Or his mm-hmm. series on LBJ is fantastic. And it goes oh, into wow. like how LBJ did everything that he did, which is, I mean, it really comes down to his ability to like move money where it needed to be. And then mm-hmm. um, the power broker is about a guy who basically built New York City, a guy named Robert Moses. It's really uh-huh. interesting. It's like, it's a thousand pages long and it's, it's really fantastic. If, if you, if, if you're curious, like it's uh, I definitely based on what you were saying. So like, you're not alone. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider anything you've said so far to be dry. Um, <laughs> but may, I mean, I read textbooks for fun, so maybe I'm just you know oh, not okay. liar here. I, that too. I went back and did my mathematical physics book recently because I I felt like I was slipping. But um, yeah, there's a there's um, you know, there's some really good books that have been around a long, long time for people who are like just really nerdy and are interested in like the early days of like the nuclear programs and stuff. There's something called the Los Alamos Primer. And that is a fantastic book for people who want to understand nuclear science and the basis of where nuclear weapons came from. Because right now I'm working on a series of articles for Rocket Times Media, which will be up in about a month and a half um, on our nuclear weapons issues in the United States. 
security, safety, what we're doing with them, what, what, what we have to do in terms of force management, uh, new weapons development. Um, and, and, you know, people say, well, we want to get rid of nuclear weapons. And I said, you know, that's a great dream, but we can't do it. We don't even have the people that we need to be able to do that. We don't have enough people to actually get rid of them. So um, there's a lot of work. And so a group of us have gotten together and we've written a series of articles because uh, most of us started our careers in the nuclear community. And it's just things that people don't think about. And we've reached the point that we have in, in the nuclear uh, community because of a lot of bad decisions by people who didn't understand it. And now we have a president spending copious amounts amount on nuclear security without any, any understanding of the structure and operation of the nuclear community. So it's, it's, it seems to be an, an ongoing issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so three, two questions, then like the open end one I told you about, um, if you could go to any celestial body, what celestial body would you, you can go there or you can live there, like kind of like a vacation home. Um, where, where would you want to live? What would be oh, like yeah. your summer home in the, in the, you could live in the sun if you wanted, like you get perfect protection. You can, you can live there just, just fine. Well, living in the sun could be really interesting. And I don't know if that we don't have something that lives in the sun now. Um, I know that we're talking about maybe the upper atmosphere of Venus having life in it. Um, but where would I want to live? You know, I, I've always been fascinated by Jupiter and maybe the living in the rings of Jupiter could be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I'd go with Titan. Really, would you? Yeah, I, yeah. I kind of just like to go through the, just kind of zoom through the rings of Jupiter. Yeah, there's so much there. There's mm-hmm. there's like 40, 42 moons or something like that. At least, yeah. 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 You'd the see other a lot. thing that I, I was flashing on, you know, Proxima B, the new planet around, you know, off at Proxima Centauri. And that could be really interesting to see what we look at like from a distance. Um, and of course, there's always been, you know, the question of Vega. Uh, you know, is there, is there a civilization in Vega somewhere? I um, think, uh, there's a great documentary about a, a crew that went to that area called contact by Carl Sagan and yeah, the, the, yeah, the answer what's there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they go through a wormhole. Uh, I, I it's not a documentary for people. Who, it's who not wanna, a documentary. It's no, not it's documentary. A, it was Jodie Foster. It's not a documentary. <laughs> yeah. That's a good book. Um, all right. Uh, should, this is this there because I asked you the celestial bodies. Um, mm-hmm. Should should Pluto be a planet? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> I I know I know I know people are going to go. Oh well, Pluto's not that unique, but Pluto is our Pluto. I I grew up with Pluto, and it's why why demote Pluto and not promote other planets that are like Pluto. I mean, you know. I, this this is this is where we lose creativity that you know it just bothers me instead of saying like well pluto's too small because there are other you know bodies bigger than pluto that's stupid just start including the other bodies well uh and they well i guess to the creativity point the the classification for the objects that pluto is are called yeah. plutoids so they were yes. they didn't really try it there no they didn't no they didn't they did not they didn't No, it was disappointing at every level. And, you know, if we started looking at plutoids, we could have like 20 planets in the next year. You know, we could be like the the most populated solar system in our neighborhood. (laughs) Uh, um, 
there's a, a, a really cool YouTube video about um, how space is drifting apart. And I don't know why the idea that we're really populated made me think of the fact that we're alone, but um, maybe it's just like the well, opposite. I don't think we're alone. No, well, it's like, a, it's like eventually, like all the galaxies will just like be away from us besides like the local group. And we'll mm-hmm. look up and won't be able to see anything or visit any of them. It's like, oh, that's sad. And we'll like merge into like one giant like super galaxy, which is going to be called like a Milky Andromeda Way or something like that. Yeah, um, well, the Milky Way and Andromeda are going to merge. Yeah, but yeah. I think that's kind of weird that like over time things are moving away from us in such a way that like there will be people who look up and if they don't have like recording systems, like they won't actually know what this guy used to look like. Um. Which is well, weird because then it's like, what did we miss? I don't think it's going to be an issue for humans. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is a while, this is a very long time from now, you know. So yeah. I think it's like you know billions and billions, but um, yeah, we're we're not going to be here. You know, they're they're working on longevity. We might be able to live for a very long time. Um, <laughs> we're not we're not going to be here. Yeah. Um, right. So then, uh, the last two questions are, um, you know, what's a question that you have that you don't have the answer to that you love for? It could just be, you know, esoteric. It could be, you know, meaning of life. I don't know. Uh, what's a question that you wonder about that you don't have the answer to? So that maybe someone listening in can throw you their answer. Why does the History Channel keep making ghost programs? I think they just gave up. When I was a kid, I was homeschooled for a couple of years. I would <laughs> like, I watched History Channel. And I learned so much. And then I watched the Discovery Channel. And then by the time I graduated high school, it was ghost channels. I don't know what happened. I, I'm you, 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 or or ancient aliens, and I, and they always have the person. He's a an ancient alien scholar, and I'm going. <laughs> yeah, he's a uh, uh, what Eric von Daniken's son, <laughs> something like that. I don't know, but it's and they have these people with the goofiest hairdos, and yeah. and and you sit there going, you you have this remarkable media uh, empire. Um, if you're going to talk to ghosts, do something different. Yeah, you know? ghosts, ghosts never show up like that. Someone's making a joke about this where like it's like eight seasons in and they haven't found a single ghost. Like, why do people keep tuning in? <laughs> um, there's just so much really cool stuff in history as well that like just really would blow people's mind. Um, like just looking at like American history, look at like the Incan Empire and like they just unified and then like 100 people walked in and like kicked their door down and like knocked them out within like. 10 years like five years mm-hmm. um or the tainos like the, the caribbean was really treated poorly um, oh well yeah i mean well look at what we did in you know north america <laughs> it wasn't very good and you know europe you know brought you know like syphilis and cholera so you know i thought i thought we got syphilis from the native americans and we gave them uh, no no actually you know, we it, we had syphilis first they had a form of syphilis that was not life-threatening or damaging but we brought a new kind in and it got rid of the the, the better syphilis oh we didn't we didn't do anything the no. name well well there's also like the, the name americans didn't have like viruses because they didn't have a lot of uh domesticated well, animals well they you know like well they yeah. didn't like live with their domestic well a lot of viruses um that mess up humans they uh they jump they're jumping from a different species where they were like okay. this is our they're home right. we're not gonna yeah. kill these things and then they jumped us and they're like this isn't our home then we're gonna kill it um mm-hmm. you know um but they didn't really have a lot of domesticated animals so they didn't have a lot of like opportunity for vectors to happen like that like how cows pigs and chickens like in the um the eu and stuff but at least that's like the theory i read um i don't know if it's true uh you never know but uh 
So you want to know why the History Channel has ghost stories? All right. Yeah. Anyone who's working at the History Channel, we want to know. Um, we want to know. Yes. All right. And then uh, what? And, and men can men can go around drilling islands in the North Atlantic for years and years and years and years and years and years and get money and stay on TV. <laughs> Someone's drilling a hole in North Atlantic. Yeah, the the there's an island, Oak Island. It's on. Oh the yeah, yeah, I, I like, saw they, that. I'm like, I'm like, oh my god, you know, like well, we found all this stuff on this island. Well, it's a protected island in the North Atlantic. In the 16 and 1700s, it was like a 7-Eleven. It had clean water, fresh water, lumber, rocks. They could build things. Yeah, of course, there's crap there. Everybody used it. It was like a 7-Eleven. There was a there was a small island on the Alaskan chain where the Japanese invaded, and there's like the only place that they actually like put boots on American soil, and uh -huh. so they they captured everybody, and they shot the the like the white pastor and the white teacher, and then uh -huh. they enslaved everyone else and made them work, and so uh -huh. when they came back like there was only like there's only like a handful of them, so they couldn't keep the population up, so they left and they made it a bird sanctuary. <laughs> And, and like it's actually in a movie called the big year they don't talk about it in the, in the movie I, I just randomly looked it up and mm -hmm. um like the one i don't know man that's really sad at least the birds like it i don't know like they planted a bunch of trees um mm -hmm. yeah. well you know on the on the subject of alaska and native peoples um the permafrost is melting releasing yeah. methane into the atmosphere and alaskan um native villages are falling into the ocean so um, not, not trying to upset anybody. <laughs> we have some um, issues that um, people aren't looking at, uh, at. And there's an organization called the Lowlander Center. And they are actually largely Native American people that are dealing with the loss of, um, you know, basically homeland mm -hmm. because of rising water and melting permafrost. Yeah, I've been thinking like how if, if like, this is like the generation you have, we're going to get you longevity. We're, we're both going to live to like, you know, 200. And um, mm -hmm. like, this is like the generation where like everything should, like the world will be really weird when we're older, you know? It's pretty weird now. Yeah. Well, we don't have like iron and stuff. I mean, not iron, uh, lead. There's no lead in paint or in like carburetors. So like some things have improved. Yeah. <laughs> but, in, but in like global warming sense, like nothing, you know, a lot of bad things. Um, but you could like, we could like, you know, make a bunch of volcanoes erupt for a while and then like i think that like decrease the temperature for a little bit but anyway so the the um what are some areas uh that is there anything that you're building or working on right now that you love people's help with i know you're looking for an hq are there criteria yeah are there criteria that you're assessing by that other people can well uh, yeah we want a, we want a community that will you know accept a bunch of green oriented um scientists and engineers who do energy and space work and um, so that means, uh, you know, putting up with um, probably some very demanding engineers and scientists for 10 or 15 or 20 years who like to build weird stuff and um, play music maybe a little too loud and uh, race electric motorcycles and that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, my neighbors are so used to me doing weird stuff now, like building airplanes in my carriage house and uh, testing engines on my driveway and so nobody really says anything um i that's shot a, cool a laser. neighbor huh 
I said, that's a cool neighbor. I don't know. You know, I don't should say anything negative. No, just come no, join. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I live in a really old area and uh, my carriage house was built in 1828. And occasionally we find some really old stuff in the ground. And um, the woodland Indians were uh, very popular, populated in this area. And we dig up celts and stuff all the time on the property. And I try to record where they are on the, on the plat. So we keep track of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, I was thinking about this uh, in the last year when we didn't have a lot to do besides think and write and do research and remember to dust my lab once in a while. Um, but, you know, in the 1960s, because of the Vietnam War, a large number of Americans moved to uh, central Canada and a town called Regina was actually built in, in a lot of ways by Americans who went there who were scientists and engineers and writers and artists and stuff. And I think we're gonna start seeing that kind of migration to areas in, even in the United States where communities are open to new ideas and new economic models and new opportunities. So I, I see this is kind of becoming like a new renaissance for the United States and, and maybe Canada because the whole part of Western Canada and Western United States are like a, is like an economic zone. And it's, it's fascinating the stuff that they do there. And, um, you know, my family came from Quebec. So um, I'm more familiar with Eastern Canada and uh, to see the stuff that, that's going on in the Northwestern United States and Western Canada is pretty amazing. I mean, you have these very, shall we say woke kind of policies and communities and businesses that you don't really think about, you know, being like from Montana and, you know, Ames, Iowa and those places. Um, but it's, 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 it's fascinating to me, the evolution, and it is evolutionary what's occurring. Um, while, while the government and media channels and everybody's arguing and bemoaning everything, you know, people are doing some amazing things around the country. Mm-hmm. So. I, th- I think that in the next couple of years, we're going to see some, some incredible things happen when, you know, companies like mine find the communities where we, I think we, you know, belong, where we can create new opportunities and, and new diversity and new economic models. Makes sense. So are you, um, so the community is a big component of it. Uh, are there other aspects that you're on the lookout for? Um, is it like, um, well, uh, second post-secondary schools are important. Um, we like working with particularly junior colleges because they tend to be so creative. Um, uh, engineering schools are, would be helpful. Uh, a good industrial base in general, at least uh, a history of one. There are some things that we, we need to do that need to be able to do things like certain things like welding and uh, processing of certain types of materials. We can do that in-house, but we'll need to hire people and train people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think a community that's really open to, you know, new ways of producing energy and food and, um, you know, really um, being dedicated to American manufacturing and, and creating, um, you know, a good manufacturing environment. I think those are the most important things because, We've got, you know, so many products we're going to be rolling out in the next few years that um, it's it's just, you know, I'd like to say we can stay in the Midwest and do it, but the 
the capacity to manufacture in the Midwest has been lost largely due to the lack of uh, trainable people and, and the kind of environment where you can have highly skilled manufacturing uh, skills and, and trades. And we, we started out by hiring like non-traditional people, like hiring middle-aged people and training them in new ways. And uh, hire, I hired welders and taught them to do sheet metal work. So, so they'd never done that before. And I, I brought in um, people who specialized in soft materials fabrication, like foams and textiles and, and aramids and that kind of stuff and, and taught them how to do work with high temperature materials. And um, we created new process methods for, you know, weird stuff like embedding sensors and, and vitreous glass, you know, layers and glass and doing things with glass that hadn't been done before. And um, so really, uh, you know, um, it's just kind of a, I, I, there were forward thinking communities all over this country. It doesn't have to be a big community. Yeah. I know a lot of people are building, um, like Berkeley, uh, California. It's really expensive. So I don't, I don't know that, you know, no, I, I, don't, I think Berkeley is out of our budget. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's Colorado, uh, that I know a lot of people really enjoy. And then there's Austin. Austin is doing a lot of stuff and they probably would really like our electricity stuff. Um, cause they did not do well and it's definitely going to happen again. Um, no, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So, um, okay. So new HQ, if anyone is in a place that you love and you're building a company or that, you know, has, uh, those types of features, you know, email me or, you know, message Rye, uh, she has a website that is going to be in the show notes or, um, actually I think Rye even like WW dotted it in the beginning. Um, so what, what other things should, can people look forward to like kind of like a teaser for the next six months, anything cool coming up? Um, well, besides the fact that we're rolling out our, our new team with offices around the country, which is like a big deal for us. Um, yeah, um, we'll have our space plane mock-up uh, completed this summer and the engineering for the flying atmospheric flying version will be done the end of this year. Um, so that's, that's in the offing. Our uh, small sat, our cube sat dispenser system, we've got it worked out. I don't know if I remember telling you that or not, but we were testing it in the uh, test article. The CubeSat test article was functioning a lot like a small cubic kind of cannonball. So um, I could I could make my technician run really fast, and um, that was fun. Um, so this dispenser uh, uses the same uh, you know volume as some of the existing ones, only can hold more CubeSats uh, by volume because of the way it's configured. And uh, it uses uh, motorless motion technology, which is nice. So you don't have servo issues or other things. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the space plane stuff is going ahead. Nobody talks about it, but we, we have a team um, and it, it's moving ahead slowly. We haven't decided where we're gonna build it yet. Um, the the test bed, the flying version, that'll be kind of in a, funny looking aluminum airplane flying around the country. Um, we can build, you know, basically anywhere because um, it's just your, your basic aircraft construction kind of stuff. And we built a lot of airplanes. Um, so that that's to look forward to. The uh, wind farm um, that we're designing that can go on actual farms with our vertical 
uh, wind turbines that we can stack. We're, we're moving in that direction very quickly. And the first one may be deployed in New Mexico. We don't know yet. Um, so, you know, the fact that you can use croplands and agricultural lands to produce electricity uh, with wind turbines and not have to worry about safety issues or projectile fragmentation zones and all that stuff is, is a big deal. So that's really exciting. Um, is there like so a, that, do you have, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's, that's about where we are. Yeah. Do you have like a newsletter or like a, a place that people can go that you generally update on these types of things? I know you have a new website. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the two websites are rsispace.com and starsailorenergy.com are the two best websites. Um, we have a, a new, our new media site that's basically like STEM for adults. Um, Rocket Times is going online at the end of June or middle of July. Um, and that's been in the works for I don't know how many years now. Um, it looks like um, our, our newspaper that we were looking at publishing a couple of years ago online, an online newspaper about our technology and our partners and stuff. Um, it's called the Galaxy Herald. Um, we'll probably be up by the end of the summer. Sweet. So um, we always look for partners and people who want to work with us. And um, uh, our, our, you know, network is designed to collaborate and, and build um, opportunities. So, you know, we're, we're around and, you know, Star Sailor Energy, info at starsailorenergy.com mm -hmm. is, is a good way to contact me or through LinkedIn. I think that's how I originally talked to you. I think I poked you on LinkedIn. I don't remember anymore. It's been so long. But um, <laughs> so, which is all I'm trying to say is she's very responsive. The um, is the so is there as the last thing, uh, you you know the I think it's only right the guest gets the last word. Is there a quote or a thought or something you'd like to leave us with? Oh, the floor I is yours, think. as they say. Yeah, can't we all just get along? <laughs> um. I don't know. I, um, I don't know. Onward and upward. I know. I don't know. To infinity and beyond. You want to be Buzz to Lightyear? infinity and beyond. <laughs> Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. There you go. You should put that on the side of your space plane. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure that it's, that's Disney now, isn't it? Yeah. They'd find you. They'll probably they're, find they're, me for saying. scary. Disney scares me. Yeah. You can't, you can't record yourself uh, singing happy birthday without, you know, like it's their copyright. Are you serious? Yeah. Oh my god. I mean, they do it. Like, who's gonna sue like a grandmother singing on on YouTube or something? But like, you're te technically they own it. <laughs> um, sorry, I I added something there. Please. <laughs> you're, supposed, you're supposed to. It's supposed to be you saying the last thing. Sorry. That's okay. And that was Ry Menges. If you want to check out more of her stuff, I definitely recommend checking out her website. LinkedIn's a good spot for it as well. So basically, just go to learnwithlowell.com and you'll see all of her links in there as well as a, a better synopsis than what, I, than what I did in the beginning. She's the founder of several startups. We talked about a lot in this episode. If you liked this, share it. You know, it helps Rye with everything she's doing. She's looking for a new HQ. She's building incredible things. You know, if you really enjoyed this episode, share it around. If you didn't like it, or there's something you didn't like about it, email me about it. Always happy for feedback. But other than that, it was great having you. There's going to be more episodes coming. There's actually some really cool stuff coming out, just like this. And, uh... So if you're enjoying it, stay tuned.